God is good all the time. Welcome to all of you who join us online each week and to our CM campus. I've thought a lot during this 500 campaign where we're inviting people to church. What is the value added of attending church? I think it's a great question because attending church adds value to my life. And tonight, I was just sitting here and listening to Josh and the band and just sort of feeling this, this wonderful spirit of, of praise and more so worship that I feel every time I'm here. And it just occurred to me, church is a lot of things, but tonight, church is a place to breathe. You look at what is happening in the world. Church is a place that we can come, where love reigns, and where we can breathe. And I don't know about you, but I needed to breathe tonight. I have seen things, and you have seen things over the past few days that no human should see. And the state of our world is horrific. Last night, I decided that instead of watching the news 24-7, because, hey, you got to go to work, that I would jump in, in my hot tub. And we, I don't run our hot tub during the summer. I, I just turn it on during the fall when things get chilly. And so I had not been in it at night until last night. Melissa went on to bed, and, and I love to go out there. And on a night like last night, the, the sky where we live, there's no lights anywhere. So it's the, the sky is just jet black, and the stars just pop. And, and I got settled in, and I looked at that sky for the first time this year. You know, the, all the stars that God has made and the constellations and all of the wonder of just looking and all of a sudden I just overcome with emotion. It just literally rained down on me and, and just hit me. I had not been there since we closed things up and the last time that I was in that hot tub, Melissa was in the throes of chemotherapy. There was nothing in our world more defining than the uncertainty that surrounded us, and many of you have been there. And when I looked at the sky last night, what overwhelmed me was the faithfulness of God. You know, praise God, you know, Melissa's cancer-free and, and, and those things, she certainly has to go in and get evaluations every three months, but praise God for where we are. But the thing that struck me was not just that our prayers had been answered. The thing that struck me was that God is faithful. And then I thought about the state of our world. 
And people have been asking me nonstop, what do I think's going on? And, and, and the reality is we don't know. This could just be a really bad year, and things could settle back into an uneasy hegemony, and life goes on. This could be the start of World War III. Get you a good solid antichrist to rise up somewhere. This could start smelling like revelation. If, they, if there's an attack in the northern border and they end up fighting in the valley of Jezreel, it's also called Armageddon. Whatever's going on, it isn't good. And I was just sitting there and I thought, where will this world be a year from now? And I don't know. But I do know that God will still be faithful. Amen. It's in the faithfulness of God that I can place my trust. Sometimes I don't even know how to pray. I, I don't. And I'm reminded of the words of the disciples when they came up to Jesus. Remember what they asked them? Teach us to pray. We have no idea how. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, when you pray, pray like this. Pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's what I came up with today. That's what I came up with today. And it is in the faithfulness of God that I can breathe. While the land is torn apart that I love. And with all the pain in the world. I still know that God is faithful. Faithful you are. Let's look into the word. See how it speaks to us tonight. I am asked at a fairly regular interval, do you think all things happen for a reason? You guys ever wonder that? Do you think all things happen for a reason? And I say, yes. And they look at me for further exclamation. And I said, the reason a lot of bad things happen is because people do dumb crap. That's a reason. Now, do I think everything happens for a divine reason? I, I do not. I think there's just bad stuff happens in a fallen world. I do. I just think there's bad stuff. Can, can good come from bad? Of course it can. But I think the reason a lot of things happen is because people do really dumb things. And really unwise things. And so I can't throw baptismal water on misuse of free, human free will and act like that, well, this is all, no matter how bad things are, somehow it all happens for a reason. I want you to imagine that you've made a series of bad judgments while you're winter hiking in a remote wilderness and you get yourself isolated and lost. I don't mean lostish, I mean straight up lost. And then your phone goes dead. Uh, bad weather's moving in. And you fully understand that 
if you are not rescued, you are very likely are going to die. And you would kick into survival mode, but just watching lots of episodes of Bear Grylls doesn't mean you have a survival mode. <laughs> Things are bad. And now I want you to imagine that after 24 hours, about 37 minutes after you've given yourself up for dead, that a search party finds you. After searching for 24 hours and the expenditure of tens of thousands of dollars to come and find you, you're brought to safety and you're greeted by family who are very relieved, a little bit of local press and fanfare. You're shaken up, but you're just fine. And, you know, it's just been 24 hours. You just, you don't need to go to the hospital and get IVs. You just need a burger and a shake and, and sleep. But right before you get into your vehicle to resume your life already in progress, imagine that an irritated ranger pulls you aside. I got to tell you, if I wasn't a pastor, I think I'd be an irritated ranger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel like that'd be my sweet spot to be a ranger who's often irritated. And the ranger says to you, I am glad we found you, but your poor decisions cost the taxpayers a lot of money, put my whole team at risk, and scared your family to death. This entire instance was 100% preventable, and it was 100% your fault. Before you go on your way, I want to tell you in no uncertain terms how to keep this from happening again. I would like to be the guy that delivered that. I would. I'd like to be the guy that delivered that news. Our passage today is that. It's that. So let's get this set up. The church at Colossae got off to a good start, but they had become increasingly lost. The problem is they don't realize how lost they truly are. Nor do they grasp the gravity of their situation, which is deteriorating. In addition to the good and proper faith they had embraced at their inception, they had allowed a unique faith-threatening virus to enter into their midst. So what Paul is attempting here is a literary rescue. He can't do a personal rescue because he's in prison. It's a literary rescue. He's trying to lead them back to the beaten path by reminding them that Jesus is all they need. I, I need you to hear this. No matter what you're going through tonight, no matter how you're feeling tonight, Jesus is all you need. He is all you need. So we spent the last two weeks exploring six claims about Jesus that the Colossians would have found extraordinary. Some of these claims directly inform and reinforce our beliefs on what we call the Holy Trinity. I talked about the Holy Trinity a, a couple of weeks ago. And somebody wrote me a note today, and they said that the way that I illustrated the Holy Trinity, trying to make it simple, might have given people the wrong impression. And so I really thought about it, and I really considered what they wrote, and I determined that I agreed with them. <laughs> I did. I just, so I picked up the phone, and I said, hey, I got your email. I wanted to thank you for the thoughtful considerate way that you presented this. And after thinking about it, I agree with you. I, I think I tried to make something complicated, simple, and I may have left people with the wrong idea. So let me just kind of reinforce our beliefs about the Trinity. 
There will always be mystery in the Holy Trinity because it's the attempt of a finite creation to get our heads around an infinite creator. It's problematic to start with. Orthodox Christians understand our one God in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not one person in three distinct roles. It is one God in three distinct persons. I realize regular people don't spend all day thinking about that, but it is important. So let's quickly review and press on. Number one, Paul claimed that Jesus is God. That's big. Number two, Jesus was the catalyst of creation. He didn't just show up in Bethlehem to make a nativity scene appearance. He was a catalyst in creation itself. Number three, Jesus is supreme over creation. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Number four, Jesus is the head of the church and the church is his body. So if Jesus isn't the head, it's not a church. It doesn't matter if it has a steeple. If Jesus isn't the head, it's not a church. Number five, Jesus reconciles us with God. It's the work of Christ and not the law or religion or special knowledge that squares us up with God. It's Jesus. And number six, Jesus makes us holy and blameless before God. And I really pounded on this last week. But when Jesus looks at us, when, when God looks at us. God does not see a foolish soul in need of rescue. God sees our perfect rescuer. We used to sing a song and it ended with, and when he looks at me, he sees not what I used to be, but he sees Jesus. What an incredible thought. When God looks at us, he sees our rescuer. Jesus makes us holy and blameless before God. So before I move on, I just got a word for some of you. If you came here looking for a word from God, if you have truly repented of your sin, and if you've truly asked Jesus into your life, stop beating yourself up for your past. Stop beating yourself up. Stop becoming the lid. Anything God can do with you. Stop beating yourself up because you're beating yourself up over things that God no longer remembers. And if God doesn't remember, why would you want to remind him? Oh, Satan will never forget. He'll rattle your cage every day if you let him. Now that Paul has carefully introduced himself, addressed the lostness of the congregation, offered a rescue plan, and set a right path before the church at Colossae, he turns his attention to offering instructions for staying on the right path. So once you get on the right path, how do you stay there? I bet you a lot of you have been on the right path before. And then you got off. It's kind of like diet and exercise, right? I bet most of us had a point in our life where we had the diet and exercise thing down but it drifts. It just drifts. I, I've, I've completely nailed it at times, and then it just sort of slips away. Some, often in our spiritual life, there are times that we are just tracking with God. You ever had a hot season? You're just tracking with God, and then it just kind of slips away. So what Paul's doing here, he says, once you get on the right track, let me tell you how to stay there. Let me tell you how to stay there. 
Verse 23, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. So what truth? The truth about Jesus. The six things I just shared with you, you've got to believe the truth about Jesus. I want to begin by contrasting something punctiliar from something durative. Many of you are thinking that is the single most exciting sentence I have ever heard. All right, so let's go. Something punctiliar is something that happened and then concluded. Something durative is something that happened and keeps on happening. A successful rescue mission is punctiliar. Someone was lost, then they are found, then they are returned to their lives, and then everyone goes home. And with that, the rescue mission is completed. Punctiliar. Should that person get lost again, it's going to be a whole nother rescue. It's not a continuation of the first rescue. Being a hiker, however, is durative. You started hiking at some point. You enjoyed hiking. You've completed many hikes. You plan to engage in many hikes in the future. Durative. It started somewhere, but it keeps going. Continuing to believe is durative. Continue to believe. Belief starts at a point, but its action continues. It's durative. Paul has now offered a plan of rescue, literary though it may be, to the Colossians. And upon making the blind assumption that they have heeded his words, he offers some unambiguous instructions for staying found. So I want to just kind of look at this verse as, as a quick instruction manual. You must continue. So the first thing we have to say is continue what? To believe. Believe what? This truth. This truth about what? The sufficiency of Jesus. That's what he's been talking about. You got to continue to believe the truth about Jesus and stand firmly in it. We must, as Christian people, stand firm in our faith. In a non-agitated way. And it's hard. Because it seems like this world, as it exists right now, seems designed to get on my last nerve. Back to the grouchy ranger, right? My true calling. I have to always watch my attitude. I believe that my beliefs are sound. I stand on 2,000 years of Christian orthodoxy. But my attitude, I've got to stay on top of that. I have to work at that. Because it's really, really easy to get off track. We need to stand firmly. No compromise. I am absolutely not going to compromise on anything I believe. I'm not going to compromise on Jesus. I'm not going to compromise on biblical truth. I am not going to compromise. But I'm not going to be in a bad mood about it either. We've got to stand firmly. And then he says, and don't drift away from the assurance you received. When you heard the good news, those who have received Christ and are walking in Christ, all right, durative, not punctiliar, those who receive Christ and are walking in Christ have every reason to have great assurance 
concerning their salvation. So if you've received Christ and you're walking with Christ, you have every reason to be completely assured of your salvation. If we're saved by our grip on Christ, we do well to be anxious because my grip varies from day to day. But if we're saved by Christ's grip on us, that is a doctrine full of great comfort. That's the feeling that the hymn writer got when he wrote, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That's what we're talking about. The Greek concept translated drift away is actually an architectural term, and it means to be compromised by an earthquake. I would argue the American church has been compromised by a cultural earthquake over the last 50 years. In the same way, a house not supported by a firm foundation is a candidate for major damage in an earthquake. So is a faith not firmly anchored in Christ. If I look back over the past 10 years, and if I was going to get self-critical, which uh, I, I'm introspective, I'm not unduly self-critical, but if I was going to be self-critical about it, I think one mistake I made was that I overestimated the extent to which people were grounded in the Bible. I thought people were better anchored and rooted in Orthodox Christianity than they actually are. And you can see that in the past three or four years, particularly if you've been here a long time, my focus has turned solely into anchoring people into the Word of God. We're reading the Bible through day to day on an online platform. I got to tell you something kind of cool about the whole online stuff. Remember, I've always said online kind of gives you this limitless way to do ministry. You're not limited to the people who are within driving distance who may be interested, right? So our online stuff, uh, two or three months ago, was running about 3,000 a week, people participating in our stuff. It, we're reaching, all of a sudden, 9,000 people a week. It just, boom. And that's kind of what can happen in, in this world in which we live in. Things can just go, and all of a sudden, you're reaching exponentially more people than you ever imagined. But our focus is real clear. We want to ground people in the Word of God. Once you've got the real thing, you'll be able to tell all the phonies and counterfeits out there. But until you know what the real thing looks like, you're going to be deceived and you're going to be led astray. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. When a foundation is poured for a structure and the cement dries, that's really as good as that foundation will ever get. It's as strong as things will ever be. In the decades to come, the concrete can crack, the earth's going to freeze and thaw, water will erode at things, the house can suffer any number of external pressures. All kinds of bad things can happen. The more time that passes on, the more bad things can happen. The problem with bad foundations is you often don't know you have a damaged foundation until there is a major problem. About a month and a half ago, the motor in Melissa's Jeep blew up. All right, just gone, right? Whatever motors do to die, it did that, okay? It went to that happy motorcade in the sky kind of thing, all right? Gone. It's just gone. 
you know, I didn't really know it was about gone until it went. But when you kind of get looking at it, and I got thinking about it, it's been giving me hints. It's been running kind of hot. It's been going through oil. Uh, it may or may not have been smoking off and on the past three or four years. You know, when I kind of look back at it, I can see that maybe I had a few hints. Well, the problem is a lot of times we don't notice that we got a problem until we've got a problem. And in our spiritual lives, a lot of times we don't notice we've got a problem until we really have a problem. Paul is trying to say, hey, folks, Colossians, wake up before you end up with a really big problem, a really big problem. Wake up before you end up with your Jeep sitting at a engine repair shop in Summerfield. Wake up before that happens. Pay attention now. And he's trying to get people's attention. You know, the reality is Paul's concern for the church at Colossae is that they're suffering undetected foundational damage. And he's afraid that the next big earthquake may collapse their faith altogether. And here's what I want you to hear. You can't stand on a foundation you don't have. You can't stand on a foundation you don't have. And the time to build a foundation is not when all heck's breaking loose. You don't, you don't build a good house in a hurricane. Hurricanes reveal the quality of your house. You have to build a good house in good weather. What am I trying to do on Wednesday nights? What am I trying to do on Sundays? What are we trying to do reading the Bible through? Build a good foundation. Build good foundations in people. And when the storm's coming, they will. We'll be able to withstand those storms. That's what Paul is trying to do with the church at Colossae. Let's get back to the basics. Let's take everything out of there that shouldn't be there. And let's just get back to a good foundation. I believe that we can have assurance of our salvation. I believe you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to stay up at night. I believe you can have assurance of your salvation. It was actually one of the tenets that made American Methodism so attractive to a lot of people. Puritans generally believed that people were chosen to be saved or not saved by God long before the world began. The best you could kind of hope for was some kind of revelation that you were among the elect but there were really no guarantees. So the account of renowned clergyman Increase Mather becoming convinced on his deathbed that he was damned to hell was not really helpful in the psychology of a lot of colonial Christians. Contrastingly, Methodist founder John Wesley believed that we could have assurance of our eternal salvation through faith in Christ. He accurately wrote that this is a doctrine of great comfort. Since we are saved by faith and not by our own goodness or works, we don't have to live in fear of eternal damnation because we're not saved by the fact we're good. We're saved because God is good. We're not saved because of what we have done. We are saved because we have received what Jesus has done. And anything that takes the assurance of our salvation away from us is excess baggage that we do well to leave behind. Finally, a structure shifting from its foundation is a structure that will not long remain intact. Uh, the Bishop family barn is located in Sunfield, Illinois. I haven't seen it in a few years. But the, the barn is there. Jill, is the barn still standing or is it down? It's down. All right, so this is 
it during the end, all right? This is my grandpa Hal's tractor. I'm guessing it looked better when he had it. He died a year before I was born, so he's been gone a while. This was a regular working barn back when farms were organic and self-sufficient. It was a regular barn, and as you could see, it eventually fell into disrepair. And then it kind of declined a bit, and then a big storm hit. And, and the winds sort of took the thing and went like this. Kind of like when you go to a chiropractor. You know, you want them to fix you, but not quite like Bruce Lee did in his movies. You want them to stop somewhere in between in a helpful way. And, and so it kind of took this thing. And do you see right here? It cracked the foundation. The foundation was cracked. And if I could use a Southern Illinois architectural term, it left the barn standing cattywampus. All right? So the barn was just sort of tilted on things. Well, after that, it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. A structure not firmly resting on a firm foundation does not have a future. It only has a past. Paul did not want to see the church at Colossae become that. And I don't want to see you become that. I don't know if these are the last days, but it's, they're closer than they were. But I do know this. The Bible says there will be wars and rumors of wars. The Bible says, Jesus said clearly, if you follow me, you will be persecuted. There's a lot of things that are going to happen in our lifetimes where the gravity is, is going to pull us away from faithful Christianity. And that's why I think it's so important you get rooted now. I think it's so important that we get rooted now while we can, that we dig those roots deep, and then when the storms come, we'll stand tall and strong. And I think that is really what God is calling us to do. A lot of times we look at what's happening in the world and we say, what can I do? Well, theologically, it's real simple. You can repent of your sin. You can turn to God. You can pay attention and you can realize that God is faithful. That's really all we've got, right? I mean, you can watch the news 24 hours a day and get a career in your stomach ache. But that's really what we've got. I think church, I think the word of the Lord to us is to repent of our sin. Turn to God with our whole hearts. That's the message of the prophets, isn't it? Those you read in the Old Testament through the prophets. You want, you want to know the theme? Bad stuff happens, and we need to turn to God. Chronicles says, when my people called by my name will cry out to me. God's not waiting for all the heathens out there. God's waiting for us to repent of our sin and turn to him. I can do that. I can't solve what's happening in Israel, but I can do that. I can make sure hate doesn't spring up in my heart. I can make sure that I love my enemies and pray for my persecutors. I can do that. I can do what Jesus told me to do. I can do that because he's given me the power to do that. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I want to proclaim to you. Don't allow the fact you can't solve the problems in the world excuse you from getting right with God.
There's a trend in baseball to hire young and inexperienced people. Think about this. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. I just want you to hear that one more time. Go back one slide. I want you to hear this. The good news of Jesus has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. Think, think about this for a minute. When I was young, a young pastor in this church was starting to do well, and I would go into situations with other pastors. I had a need to let people know who I was. I just had a need to do that. I would tell them how well the church had done, how well church was moving, and all of those things. And, and I, I had a need for them to know that. And thinking back, I was just dripping like weak sauce all over them. I mean, it was some sort of insecurity, I guess. And so I read this, and I think, why would Paul need to reiterate that he's been appointed God's servant to proclaim the good news. Why does he need to reiterate that? Why? Well, I think we've got to remember, Paul's a bit more famous now than he was then. And as this letter shifts from the love to the shove, it seems like Paul's thinking, you know what, I've been shoving on them a little bit. I need to remind them of who I am. As you mentor people, as you disciple people, at first you just love them. But at some point, you got to love them enough to shove on them a little bit. You know, if you want to raise terrible kids, just love on them all the time. You know, at some point, you're going to have to teach them right from wrong. And, and God, at some point, starts saying, okay, I love you, but we need, we need to crack at this just a little bit here. We, we need to get at this. A little bit here. As Paul moves from the love to the shove, he just feels a need to reestablish who he is. I have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim the good news to you. It's a reminder. So, as I was saying, there's this trend in baseball to hire young and inexperienced people to positions in organizational strategy previously reserved for highly experienced people. Now, I don't think this is a bad idea in every position, but I can tell you, personally as an athlete, I would have no interest in being taught to hit by a guy who hit 204 in college. I just have no interest in it. You say, well, just because he couldn't hit doesn't mean he couldn't teach you to hit. Whatever you want to think. Whatever helps you sleep, right? I don't want to be taught to shoot free throws by someone in high school who was a 30% free throw shooter. You say, well, maybe they really know how to shoot. Then why didn't they do it? They didn't know it then. Well, it's too late now. I'm just saying, I, I want, I'm open to learn, but I want to learn from somebody who has been there. I just want to learn from somebody that's been there. And it doesn't mean I've got anything against people who have it. I just don't want them coaching me. Tim McCarver told a great story about his rookie season as a catcher. He's catching the great Bob Gibson. And Bob Gibson was a fairly surly man, and which is why 
part of the reason he was the great Bob Gibson, right? So Gibson is throwing. He's in a little bit of, he's having some problems. Some things are going bad. McCarver's catching him. And McCarver's thinking to himself, I need to go talk to him, but I'm afraid, which is a proper thought. So McCarver finally decides, I'm going to have to talk to him. Gibson throws the ball. McCarver gets it. He takes two steps toward Gibson. Gibson walks toward him, and he points his finger at him. He said, you turn around and go back behind the plate, because the only thing you know about pitching is that it's hard to hit. And I think about that a lot. Occasionally, reminding folks that Paul has, is going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer, that he'd been doing this a minute, that he had planted churches all over the world, that God had called him to proclaim the gospel was probably needed from time to time. It was probably needed from time to time. I just want you to hear this. You have been given authority to minister by the giftedness the Holy Spirit has given you. I have some theology around baptism that does that, you don't need to be ordained. You don't need to go to seminary. If you want to, knock yourself out, but you don't need to. But to be in ministry, you need to be somebody that's called. And the more experience you get at it, I just think you get a little more street credit as you go on. You say, well, how do I get street credit? By starting somewhere. Just start somewhere and learn and have a learning curve. Some of you have been Christians for a long time. Maybe some of you feel like, well, I'm a little older now. I don't relate as well to the younger generations. I want to be real clear about something. One of the greatest joys I have with this service particularly is all the 20-somethings that attend this service. You guys are awesome. You guys give me incredible joy. And it says something to me. There is a group of young people today who are looking to older and experienced Christians to help mentor and guide them to speak into their lives. I just want to say that if you're an experienced Christian, and if you've not taken the time to have interest in young people, I want to encourage you to do that. Because you're robbing yourself of using the gifts God has given you, and you're kind of robbing them of what you would have to offer. I really believe that as we move forward, that every mature Christian should be in a mentor relationship with a new Christian. Now, it's not always easy to do. You kind of got to make that thing work. I realize all of that. But I do want to proclaim we really do need each other. We really do need each other. You know, it seems like the, on one hand, Paul's saying, Hey, I'm Paul, so listen to me. And on the other hand, we all know the longer and the more effectively you do a thing, the more chance you have of making enemies. Paul had a lot of enemies. And it's entirely possible that Paul had serious detractors in Colossae. And writing this letter, his detractors were sticking their heads up and and chipping at him. And I mean... It's entirely probable that he had serious detractors in Colossae because he had serious detractors everywhere else. He clearly feels the need to establish his credentials. He's not been authorized or ordained by man. He's been authorized and ordained by God. 
for the proclamation of the good news. Some of you struggle with inviting people to church because you say, who am I? Let me tell you who you are. You are a child of the Most High God who has been saved because you have received in faith the work that was accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are assured of your salvation, and you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit and called by God to be a minister to the gospel and to be a proclaimer of the good news of Jesus Christ. So you are perfectly authorized to hand somebody one of these cards. Perfectly authorized. When I wrote That's Good News, I I wanted to make the point that sharing faith is something regular Christians are called and equipped to do. I wanted to make the point that you don't need a seminary degree or a bishop to tell you, to allow you to tell people about Jesus. You just need to get at it. Paul, God had asked Paul to send this word to the Colossians. And Paul wrote the letter. Hear the pings and go with them. Don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. Don't worry about whether you're qualified or how it will be received. Hear the pings and go with it. You know, sometimes when you go on a hike, it's, it's good to find an overlook and, and just kind of sit and breathe for a spell. Next week, we're going to open up by looking at five questions that have been presented in Colossians so far. And I want to close just by offering these questions to you and not answering them. We're going to do that next week. But I just want to talk about the questions. Is Jesus the only way to God? How does Jesus make us right with God? Is anything required on our part? Is Christianity punctiliar or dirty? And how can we truly know that we are saved? These are some of the big questions of Christianity. And next week, we're going to address those one by one. I believe that we can have the assurance of our salvation. Because I do not believe that our salvation is based upon our personal performance. I believe it's based on the performance of Jesus Christ. If salvation is a prize to be earned, we're never going to have assurance. But if it's a gift to be received, that's a different thing altogether. As we think about the themes of Colossians 1, as we close up one whole chapter after many, many weeks, I would just like to invite you to pray with me. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for your image powerfully revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of the church of which Christ is the head. Thank you for the work of the cross, which makes us right with you. By faith, we ask you to rush into our lives. Forgive us, heal us, and save us. Not by our own works, but by the works of Jesus Christ. Almighty God, thank you for rooting us in this wonderful Christian faith. May our roots reach deep. May our foundation be firm and strong. And may you use the likes of us to offer credible witness 
to the good news of Jesus Christ in a world that is more lost than I ever imagined it could be. And we pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.